Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Hello there, and welcome to a very special two-part episode of Talking Real Money. And uh, so you'll have one today and then one tomorrow because we have a special guest with us. I'm Don McDonald, and I'm usually here with Tom unless one of us is on vacation. But what we do is we hang out here trying to help you do things that you do with your money better than you did them or are doing them. And uh, occasionally, occasionally, someone of greatness agrees to join us on our little get-together here and help you become an even better investor. And we are so thrilled to be able to present to you a gentleman we haven't had on in a long time, Mr. Larry E. Suedro, who is a principal and the director of research at the Smack Em Upside the Head Alliance, I mean, the BAM Alliance, and also the most prolific author since Isaac Asimov. Isaac has like 19 books and you have what, 18, right? Something like that. Uh, 19th is coming out uh, in uh, this next month. You you sit and type all these up yourself? Mm, Yes. (laughs) Wow. No. That would never be us, Tom. Thank God uh, we don't need typewriters, though, anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Man's prolific. And white out. (laughs) Larry, it is so good to see you again. It has been a long time, and uh, it's nice to have you back on Talking Real Money. It's been too long, guys. So the the question that we get more than any other question, well, the number one question we get is, I just came into (laughs) $100,000, what to do? We're not going to ask you that question. What do I do? We hope you you answer. But the, uh, the second one we always get is, you guys have talked about indexing forever, use index funds, et cetera, et cetera. But when you manage money, you do this thing called factor investing. It's got all this da-da-da. How do you help people understand the differences between those two and figure out which direction to take, I guess? Yeah, that's a really good question, <laughs> which we could write a book about. Let's see if we can. 20, 20. <laughs> yeah. Let's see if we can uh, help people uh, with this question. So the first thing we want to do is define this word active and its counterpart passive for people, because there really isn't a good definition. Lots of people throw these words around. So I'm going to give you Gene Fama, I think one of the greatest minds ever in finance, who I've learned so much from. He's a Nobel Prize winner. Gene defined uh, it as Active investing engages in either individual stock selection and or market timing, and passive investing would do neither. Uh, However, what's important to understand is this. All index funds are passive using that definition because there's no individual stock selection or market timing, but not all passive funds that don't do any stock picking mark, are index funds. They just simply define their universe in a very different way. So let's see if I could be helpful to people by giving a better definition, and then we can give some very specific examples. So I, instead of using the word passive, I use the words systematic, transparent, and replicable, okay? And so now let's give an example here. You have even the S&P 500 is an index fund, right? But it's not really passive because there's a group, a committee 
that actually chooses which 500 stocks to be in there. It's not like the Russell 1000, which is the largest 1000 stocks, or the Russell 2000, which is the next smallest 2000 out of like 3,700 stocks. So there is a committee that does that. Does that. Now, let's take uh, asset class like small value, which has different risks uh, than large cap growth stocks, okay? And we know the evidence, I'm sure your listeners know, show that small and value stocks over the very long term have outperformed large and growth stocks. So now you have Vanguard runs an index fund, and it's based upon or it used to be based upon the Russell 2000 value. It switched to a CRISP index, and then it switched to an MSCI index. So there's some action going on there. And then choosing which index they want based upon which charge them probably lower fees to some degree to use their index. And then there's a fund family like Dimensional that doesn't benchmark against any particular index. It makes its own definition. I'll just make something up here. It buys the stocks with the lowest 20% of prices to book market, so the cheapest stocks. Uh, and then by size, it might say it has to be less than $2 billion, just to pick a number. Now, there's no index of stocks there, but it's clearly passive. There's no individual stock selection or market timing, but they're using more of an academic definition uh, of that. And they buy and hold all the stocks as long as in their, their, that index. But here's so the confusion. The here, here's the confusion, that. though. And, and this is where I think a lot of our listeners are going, we still kind of don't get it. Because funds like Dimensional Now and Avantis, their ETFs, they are being categorized as active products. And as in fact, they kind of like that. Yeah. So that's why I say you need a definition before you can call something active or passive. Clearly, Dimensional is active in defining its universe. In terms of implementing the strategy, once it is done, they are clearly not active. There is no individual stock picking, no market. Strategically they passive? Do- Excuse me? Strategically passive, maybe? You could use that, but they're not even passive in a pure sense. Strategically inactive? No. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we're going to make this a little bit more complex, but I'll try to explain. Indexing is a perfectly good strategy, as John Bogle noted. It has low cost. It's totally transparent. You know exactly what the risks are it's getting. Tends to be relatively low turnover and therefore relatively tax efficient. But there are clearly some negatives of pure indexing that can be either eliminated or minimized through intelligent design. So for example, there's a group of stocks that the academic researchers have found have horrible return characteristics. I'll give you one example. Companies that are small cap growth stocks with high investment and low profitability, those stocks have underperformed T-bills over the long term. So if you're running a small cap index fund, you own some of those stocks. If you're dimensional fund advisors, they say, well, the research says 
Those stocks have god-awful returns. People overpay for them systematically. And therefore, we will screen them out. They don't say we like this one, but not that one. They say anything with that characteristic or trait, we screen out. That's number one. Number two, an index is really dumb and creates excessive costs and tax inefficiency. When something leaves its index, it must automatically trade it. Dimensional would say, for example, let's say you own the Russell 2000 index. So there's a stock that's ranked 1001. It's in your index, but it's not in the Russell 1000 index which owns, let's say, stock number 999. Now, those stocks, every June 30th, these indexes rebalance, and they happen to swap places. So stock A, which was 1,001, is now 999, and vice versa. The Russell 1000 index fund has got to sell its stock and buy the other. The 2000 fund is selling, and yet both stocks, academic research shows, have exactly the same or virtually the same risk and return characteristics. There's no reason to prefer one over the other. So dimensional would create a construction rule that says, I'll just make this up for our audiences simple. If we're going to own those stocks in the 2000, as long as they're in that index, we will continue to buy and hold them and rebalance that portfolio. But if a stock jumps up out of that and moves up to 999, 900, but we'll, we won't buy anymore, but we won't sell and incur the trading costs and the taxes. But if it gets to 800, now it looks like a very different stock. It's not really small anymore. And then even then they don't sell it because they say, if we sell it automatically, all these large blocks of stock will drive the price against ourselves creating what's called market impact costs. So instead, they give it to an algorithmic trading program, literally dimensional, virtually all their trades are now in 100 share lots, where the index fund, everyone knows they're going to have to trade and the market trades ahead of them and it costs the index money. So there are some negatives which can be eliminated or minimized through intelligent design and therefore, outside of a total market fund, we don't use any index funds, but all of our funds are systematic, transparent. I'm glad we resolved it. Next time, we're going to discuss the offside law in soccer. We'll figure that one out next. He's always trying to sneak soccer in. <laughs> I want to sneak one last question in because I think this is really important for our listeners because we hear this all the time. We have value stocks. Well, I've underperformed for the last 10 years. Why am I still in value stocks? Small cap stocks. They're getting killed by the large cap stocks. International stocks. U.S. markets just beating the pants off the international markets. Why should I own these things when maybe they worked in the past, but are they working now? Yeah, it's a it's an important question. Uh, here's the thing that I think is among the worst mistakes investors make. When it comes to risk assets, the typical investor thinks that when you judge performance, three years is a long time, five years is very long, 10 years an eternity. Any financial economist will tell you when it comes to risk assets, 
10 years is likely nothing more than noise and should be ignored. Warren Buffett, we know, certainly ignores it, right? But here's a great example. There's three periods of at least 13 years, 29 to 43, 15 years, 66 to 82, 17 years, and 2000 to 12, so that's pretty recent, 13 years, where the S&P underperformed T-bills. And there's a 40-year period where both large and small growth stocks underperform long-term treasury bonds. Wow. 40 years from 69 to 08. That long enough to convince you? The thing is, every risk asset is going to go through long periods of poor performance. And that's why we diversify and don't concentrate because we have no clue. There's not a person on the planet who can tell you what will do well when next. Great example, 1990, the Japanese investor in Japan certainly had a home country bias. That's what the data show. Japan was by far the leader in the world in stock returns for the prior 25, 30 years. Japanese were buying up all of America, Rockefeller Center, Pebble Beach Golf. They, we didn't have, we had one semiconductor plant left in the U.S. at that point. And the next 33 years, Japanese large cap stocks returned 0.2% per annum. Mm. So forget inflation adjusted return. They earned 0.2% for 33. That's why you diversify. That's why we own not just stocks, including diversifying it to small and value, uh, you know, but other assets. And let me give you a great example, one last one. 2016, November through October 2020, worst performance value ever. And that's what people focused on. The two years after that, value crushed. It was the biggest value premium ever, but a lot of investors weren't there. It was just a repeat of the late 90s when 98 and 99 growth far outperformed and then it got crushed. Today, we have the largest spread ever between the PEs of growth stocks and value stocks. And that spread has been the best predictor of the future performance. We're at in the 95th percentile or so of history. That doesn't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. But it tells you as a best indicator that we have that the value premium is likely to be bigger than it's been historically going forward. Not a guarantee, but that's the likelihood. We're talking with economist Larry Swedro from the BAM Alliance, author of tons of books on investing. Just check them out. And that ends the first part of our Larry Swedro adventure. And we will be back tomorrow with another episode of Talking Real Money. Continue talking to Larry about some more eclectic types of investments. And we hope you'll join us then and every other day. And if you need help with your money, if you need somebody to sit down and spend some time going through your portfolio to see if you're doing things right, or you're, you don't know how to get that retirement plan started, we're going to make our great advisors available to you for free. Not a free consultation. No, this is like free help. You get free help. Now, if you want to hire us forever, we want you to pay us, please. But we're going to help you, even if you're a do-it-yourselfer. 
All you have to do is go to TalkingRealMoney.com and set up an appointment by clicking on the Meet an Advisor button or call our office at 800-386-3004, 800-386-3004. And uh, I continue on vacation, but magically I'm still here. Uh, for Tom Cock and Larry Swedro, I'm Don McDonald, Talking Real Money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. Are we done now? 